Lord, we just thank you for this evening, and we thank you for this opportunity to learn from your word. We ask you to guide and lead with your spirit as we go through this, and we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Second Corinthians chapter 4, starting at verse 13. We having the same spirit of faith, according as it is written, I believe and therefore I have spoken, we also believe and therefore speak, knowing that he which raised the Lord Jesus shall raise up us also by Jesus and shall present us with you, for all things are for your sake, that the abundant grace might through the thanksgiving of many rebound to the glory of God, or redound, excuse me, for, for which cause we faint not, but though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, works for us a far exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. All right. So we start out with this. It says, we have the same spirit of faith according as written. I believe and therefore I have spoken. We also believe and therefore speak. Now this verse that he's talking about it is written is in Psalm 116, verse 10, which I, huh? okay, and this is talking about the Messiah saying, I believe, therefore I have spoken, I was greatly afflicted, I said in my haste, all men are liars, and I shall render unto the Lord for all of his benefits toward me. I will take the cup of salvation and the cup of the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows. So this is the Messiah talking. I have, I have believed and I have spoken. And therefore we believe and we are to speak. Okay. People who say, well, I believe in, in Jesus and never speak about him. Or I believe in God and never speak about him. Probably don't know him and don't truly believe. And this is something that Jesus told us. We're to go to all the world sharing the gospel. And this is very important for us. When I meet people and they tell me they're a Christian, but they never want to talk about the Bible or God or what God's done in their life, I sometimes wonder, do they even know God? It's not for me to judge, but I'm looking at them and saying, do you know God? You know, this, how, how excited do you get about God? And I've shared this many times. I love talking with people who want to talk about God because it means that he's real to them, that he is very real to them. And then it says, we know, we perceive with our eyes and our senses that he which raised up the Lord Jesus shall raise up us also by Jesus and shall present us with you. And I, you know, basically he's saying that Jesus rose from the dead and because he rose from the dead, He's going to raise up us. And this is a very powerful statement. Jesus was resurrected. And how do we know that he was resurrected? We go through the story of the resurrection, and it's quite obvious. They watched him be buried. You know, a lot of people will say, well, Jesus didn't die. Well, we know that he died because when they drove the spear up into his pericardium, it gave, a, it gave plasma and water. The blood had separated on his death. And the people who are medical doctors say that that is a description of somebody who is dead. <laughs> and that was something we didn't, that they didn't know back in the first century. It was just, well, we saw water and blood com coming out. And we learned over the centuries that that indicates that, the, that there was death. He's buried and you know, it was interesting that the Jews told the dis soldiers that, well, when you go report to your, to your uh, commanders, tell them that while you slept, the apostles stole the body. And we'll pay off your officers. Because in that day, to, follow, to be asleep when you were on duty is the same punishment as it is in today's army, death. Okay, now normally they'll just court-martial you if you're outside of war, but Rome was at, at war. They, they had the death sentence for falling asleep on, on watch. And even in our military today, you can 
face the death penalty for falling asleep on watch because you are supposed to be guarding. You're not supposed to be sleeping. And they said, you know, well, you tell them you, while you slept the, the apostles. Now, there's a great problem with that statement, all right? If you're sleeping, how do you know what happened? You know, if, when you go to sleep, you kind of go to sleep, you become unconscious for a while, and you wake up. And usually when you wake up, there's that period of disorientation because it seems like you just went to bed and you look at your clock and eight hours have gone by or four hours have gone by or, or 24 hours have gone by if you're really tired, I guess. But you know, when you're sleeping, you don't know what goes on. If you were sleeping and somebody robbed your house, all you could tell them was that your house got robbed. You wouldn't know who did it. So we know that their testimony does not make sense. We also know that, we, that it was a factual thing that happened because the one that gave the testimony in the scriptures was the women. Now that doesn't make, uh, you know, in our day and age, that doesn't sound like a big deal. But in the days of Jesus and before, a woman couldn't even be the eyewitness to a crime and be the, give testimony to it because they weren't considered trustworthy witnesses. And so the women given a testimony that Jesus has raised from the dead is not something that would have been made up. Because if they were making up a story, it would not have been the women who saw, the, saw Jesus raised from the dead. It would have been the guys. Okay, we, the honest guys, the ones that can, that can testify in court saw him raised from the dead. They're the ones that have to be convinced that he rose from the dead. So we say, Jesus rose. <laughs> And because he was raised from the dead by God the Father, we will be raised from the dead by God the Father. And this is going to be the point that, that uh, Paul is going to make from the rest of this chapter and into the next chapter. The power of the resurrection. The power of what our hope is. And not the idea that we're just going to float away and become nothing. Uh, there's many people that, many religions, cults that teach that you know, when you die, you're dead. Or when you die, you're going to go to heaven just automatically. Some say, well, if you believe the right way and been good enough, you'll go to heaven. And all the rest of the people die and they just cease to exist. But God created man to be eternal beings, eternal forward anyway, not eternal past. And once you're born, we have an eternal destination, whether it's with God or without God. And we face eternity. We face an eternal life. And it's very important that we understand that Jesus rose from the dead. He's, the, he's called by Paul the first fruit of our resurrection. And this is what he's talking about. Because Jesus rose, he, God proved his power to raise up the dead. And so we see that this is what he's talking about. Verse 15. For all things are for your sake, that the abundant grace might through the thanksgiving of many redound to the glory of God. Yeah. And it says, for all things are for your sake. Whose sake? Remember, he's, he's writing to the church. All right? So all things are for the, the sake of the Christian. In Romans, he tells us that all things work together for good for those who are called according to the purpose of God. God has a good plan for us. And this is, again, a great comfort for us because God is in control of everything. Even when it looks like he's not in control, he's in control because he has a plan. We don't know that plan most of the time. We look at it and say, God, you've lost your marbles. How could you let all this stuff happen? And God says, no, I know exactly what I'm doing. And this is very important for us to understand. God knows even when we don't know. And, you know, I guess it might fit one of my things of God, I don't understand, but you've promised it for good, and that's all, I'm going to hold on to it. You know, sometimes you're hanging on to the bottom of a rope, you know, saying, God, I, I'm holding on to this knot, your promise. <laughs> you know, I'm hanging over the, the precipice, but you've promised that there's something good. All I see is headaches and trouble and problems, but you've promised good. And that's all we can do sometimes. And we hold on tight to that, that promise. And this is what Paul's saying here. We know that all things are for our sake. 
What is, our, what is our, for our sake? Well, he's training us. He's teaching us. He sometimes gives us strength. A lot of times the hard stuff we go through is so that we'll have strength for the next bigger problem that comes along and gives us the ability to reach out to others. And here he's saying, for your sake, that the abundant grace might through the thanksgiving of many redound. Abundant grace. Super abundant grace he's talking about. And what is grace? Getting what we don't deserve. What a precious gift grace is. God takes us as his children and gives us all the riches of being a child of his. Gives us all the blessing of the righteousness of Christ. So that when he looks at us, he sees perfection. What a gift that is. You know, that is a, a super gift in and of itself. When God looks at us, he sees Jesus. He sees perfection if we're in Christ and we've put on Christ. And super abundant grace, abounding grace that is greater than anything we can imagine. And this is what's so important. Giving grace to others because God gives us grace not judging others, not criticizing others. And so many times over the years, I have seen people grow because God gives grace. Uh, and you know, if you've ever experienced it, you know what it's like to have somebody pound on you with judgments and laws and rules. And they try to, they try to and they're thinking they may even be honest. You know, if you follow enough rules, you're gonna be a pretty good person. And I'm just going to keep piling on the rules. And this happens a lot in a lot of churches. We're just going to keep giving you rules and rules and rules. And this is how you're supposed to act if you're a Christian. And this is what you're supposed to do. And, and we look at it and say, okay, fine. Where are all these things in the Bible? Yeah. I remember early on in my Christianity, you know, there was all these different things. You know, guys had to have short hair. Women had to have long hairs. Guys had to be dressed up for church. Women had to have their dresses on. You know, don't go to the movies. Don't go to dancing. Don't, you know, don't do this. Don't do that. And there's this long list of rules that were supposed to be, this is what makes you a good Christian. And in some cases, they might have been good things for Christians to consider, but they didn't do any good for you if you didn't know Jesus Christ. They were just a bunch of rules make you look good. You know, I'm not drinking, I'm not smoking, I dress right, I got my hair right, uh, I go to church every time the doors are open, look at me, I'm a wonderful Christian. And then you end up being one of those that Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. You know, you've done all kinds of wonderful, good things. You did all these good works. But I never knew you. Grace actually changes lives. When we give each other grace, we can grow. Now, there are places where, where you have to be pretty strong. If you're an employer of a, of a business, you have to make sure your people are doing what they're supposed to do. You know, for parents, we have to make sure that our kids are, are growing. But there's also time for grace in both of those places. If it's not a really critical issue, we give grace. But there are times, there are times for rules to be in place and say, so you're going to behave a certain way. But in general, God is saying, give grace. Grace changes lives. And this is what Paul is trying to bring out. Paul, a Pharisee, he understood rules really well. Okay, he was a Pharisee. Pharisees followed the laws as best they could, and the ones they didn't try to change to, to meet there. But they were good at following rules. I've met lots of people who are really good at following rules. But it's easier to follow rules. Well, it makes it real easy, and we're going to see that later on when he says the just shall live by faith. If you have a disciplined flesh, it's easy just to say, I'm going to follow this rule. Mm -hmm. And I've said it would be so nice if God just told us, you know, sat on our shoulder and told us what to do in every step of the way. But that's not the way he works. He wants us to walk in faith. And that is sometimes difficult. Now, faith is actually knowing, you know, walking out in what we know. Right? Faith just isn't just a jump off of a cliff and saying, okay, God, I trust you. He's not asking for that. But there is a place where faith does step out 
into the unknown. And most of what I know, I am very absolutely sure from study and history that it's true. Am I 100% sure on any of it? No, because then there would be no place for faith. But it's not like trying to jump over the Grand Canyon type faith. It's, okay, there's a little two-foot ditch. I can, I can jump over this little bit of, of space. And a lot of people have a blind faith. That they just, well, I'm just going to believe. Now, I'm too analytical to be that kind of a person. I have to sit down and study and know what God says and understand most of it. You know, there still is that place where you take a step over that says, well, I'm not 100% sure, but I am very convinced. Lee Strobel, in the case for Christ, wrote, you know, wrote up, this was his long three-year experience trying to disprove Christianity, and the more he tried to disprove it, the more he found that it had to be true. And he basically, he said in his book, and if you've watched the movie, he said, he came to a place where he said, how much more evidence do I need? I'm not 100% sure, but I'm now sure beyond a reasonable doubt. It must be true. And he took the step to accept Christ. And this is what we have to do. Will God prove himself 100% to us? No, because we need to have faith. And here he says, grace abounds, super abounds. God's grace is so wonderful. It's an amazing thing that he gives us grace in the first place because we don't deserve anything, which is what grace is all about. If we deserved it, it wouldn't be grace. And we've said this before, you know, if I deserve something, it's wages. I earned it. Grace and the gift of God and eternal life is unearned. Jesus just says, I'm giving it to you. I'm giving you a gift. Are you ready to accept it? And you know, and the fun thing about this is people can get saved without knowing anything other than the fact that they are a sinner that deserves help. How simple is that message? A message that even a young child can learn. And then over, as we study, we get to find out all the things God does for us at that moment. We, just, we step out in, in a faith-based grace statement and... There's a class that I've taught that the 53 things that happen to you at the moment that you're saved. You, you don't have to know all 53 things to get saved. God just does them for you. And then over the years, you'll learn. And every time I teach that class, it goes, well, people go, well, I knew that. I knew that. I knew that. Yeah, you knew it, but you've never put it all together in one spot. Because if you studied God's word, you know the things that he's done. You just never really think about it. But he says, everything is abundant grace that it might through the thanksgiving, being thankful. You know, one of the problems we have as human beings is thanklessness. We oftentimes forget to tell God thank you. We forget to tell each other thank you. you know, human beings are very selfish in general. They don't want to be thankful. They don't share thanks. They're... they're kind of greedy. <laughs> uh, but, you know, we want to be careful. Here it says, be the, through the thanksgiving that it may abound or be abundant, exceed, abound, be, be exceeding. You know, exceeding to the glory of God. God says his grace brings him exceeding glory. And you know, we think about this, you know, I sometimes have wondered, why did God make man? Okay, it was not a surprise that Adam and Eve sinned. God was not saying, up in heaven saying, oh my goodness, how did they fall? He knew they were going to fall. A matter of fact, we know that Jesus was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. So before God even created mankind, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit got together and said, we're going to create man, they're going to fall, and Jesus, would you go to the cross and die for them? He said yes, and then God created man, knowing, he was, knowing that he was going to fall before he even fell. I don't even know why God made man. You know, a lot of people say, well, God, God wanted people to worship him. God is self-sustaining on himself. He doesn't need anything. I don't know what he gets out of this deal for man other than he lost his life for a period of time. 
and took pain and suffering upon himself so that he could buy us. A bunch of worthless worms that he, you know, beneath his content, you know, beneath him completely, yet he loves us. And, you know, this is something that's just amazing. When you think about who we are compared to God, a lot of people will say, you know, and compare man like ants to us. You know, they're nothing. You know, how many of us worry about an ant on the floor or, you know, crawling around the ground or anything? You know, this is how much notice God could take in us, and yet he carefully observes us. He carefully looks at us, and it says that it is for an exceeding glory of God that he gives us grace. And I, I had fallen in love with God's grace. The fact that he gives us so much that we don't deserve. And you know, one of the things about that is God gives us his grace. He gives us forgiveness. He gives us love. All of these things so that we will learn to give them to others. That we will learn to love others. We will learn to forgive others because of who he is toward us. He shows us his forgiveness. He shows us his love. He shows us his grace so that we, as his children, will give grace and love to others. Not just other Christians, but to all of humanity. Definitely to our other Christians. That should be the easy part. You know, Jesus said, you know, you love them because they love you. You invite them to your house for dinner because you know that they'll invite you to dinner. You, you love them. You know that they love you. They're easy to love. The hard one is when you invite somebody to dinner knowing that they'll never repay you back. You're nice to them when they're very nasty and mean to you. You love them in spite of all their actions. That is showing God's love, God's grace, his mercy to other people. And this is what he's saying, that super abundant grace that he gives to us so that we'll show others. Verse 16, for, this, for which cause we faint not, but though our outward man perishes, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. He says, we faint not. We do not give up spiritually. We are not spiritually exhausted. And we may get physically exhausted, but when Christ lives in us, we don't faint spiritually. It may get hard. <laughs> Oftentimes it gets hard. But he says, we don't give up. Though our outward man, our flesh perishes, our inward man is renewed day by day. In the last chapter, it ends with him saying, we are changed from glory to glory. God takes us where we're at and moves us to the next level of glory. Then he takes us from that level of glory and moves us to the next level of glory. And this is what it's saying. Our flesh is being crucified. Galatians 2.20. Our flesh is perishing. It is dying when Christ lives in us. So that the inward man is renewed day by day. Every day we get stronger spiritually when we're following God. Now, we can starve our spirit. We can really, you know, and I know many Christians or so-called Christians that do. You know, you, how often do you read your Bible? Well, about uh, every Sunday morning when I come to church. <laughs> I read my one or two verses that the pastor's talking about, and that's it. You know, well, yep, that's all I do. Oh, you might want to renew your spirit once in a while. And I've shared with you all, I have this really funny picture of heaven with people going to heaven and, and having emaciated spirits because they did not feed it on this world, or having nice, healthy, plump, fat spirits that, are, that have been fed spiritual food. And I know that's a weird, weird thought, you know, but I, I just have this picture. You know, these guys who are just crawling around the streets of heaven like babies because they weren't fed and having to spend in heaven growing up. And those who are mature and knowing how to handle God's word being, probably being the ones that have to train, the ones that came in there with nothing. But, you know, he says that we're being renewed day by day, made new, made fresh. I love the fact that every day with God is a brand new day to experience him, a brand new day to say, God, what are you going to do today? 
It makes it fun. God, I'm just waiting for you. One of my prayers most mornings is, God, show me what, what you want me to do today. Today. Who am I going to talk to? Who am I going to share with? It might be one of the prisoners at the prison. It might be one of the uh, employees that I get to talk to. He may just be building up another Christian, answering different, different questions from them. But who do you have for me to be able to minister to today? For many years, it was my kids. We did a homeschooling, and you got, got to train the kids in the, in the Bible, got to train them in how to see God in their various courses. You know, but that was a fun thing, too. Discipling my own children was fun. I enjoyed having that intricate actions with them to disciple them, to bring God into every situation. And I tried as much as my dad's example was. Whenever I asked my dad some question, he would go to the Bible and say, this is what God says. I tried to bring the Bible into my own, my own kids' life as much as possible. Tried to bring it into individuals' lives when I counsel them even now as a pastor. You know, this is what God says. This isn't what I say. This isn't my opinion, but this is what God desires us to do. Everything has to be centered within his word. Otherwise, it's just our opinion. And opinions aren't worth a whole lot, okay? Because if it's just my opinion, it doesn't mean anything. But what does God say? When God says something, it's something that his opinion matters. <laughs> because his opinion is an opinion, it is fact. And we need to keep that in mind. It says that he will get this glory. The inward man is growing. Now the inward man has to be fed. This is why I push so hard. We need to be reading our Bibles every day, preferably to, you know, to learn. And when I do the how to study the Bible class, you know, I would just love to have Christians at least reading the Bible because there's so many that don't. I would really love to have people studying the Bible every day. Because that's the next step, to get in and say, God, what does this mean? Now, if you read the Bible, we're told that the word of God does not return void. Reading it is better than not reading it, but studying it is still better than reading. And we probably need to do both. I have my time of just reading, and I have my times of study. Now, just reading it is getting harder and harder over the years, because every time I read, I'm going, oh, let me go back and review that story that it's referencing, or let me check this out. Now, it's getting harder and harder to just read the Bible. Because I'm going, oh, oh, this, this reminds me of some other place. You know, and the next thing you know, I'm doing a Bible study, <laughs> not just reading. But the Spirit needs to get this renewal, and it says day by day. The mercies of God are new every morning. When God feeds us, he feeds us new information. And this is why when I change Bibles, I don't write a lot of my notes from the previous Bibles in my new Bible. Because I want to know what God's saying that's new and fresh. Now, there are certain notes I pass back and forth because it took a lot of study to get to. Okay, when I calculate dates and times and stuff, I usually will transfer those to my Bible because it took a long time to do some of that work. But you know, when we're reading God's scripture, He's not saying, I want you to eat this five-year-old food. Right? That would be like going to your refrigerator and say, okay, what do I have in the refrigerator that's been there for five years that I can eat? It's not appetizing. It's not nutritious. As a matter of fact, it would make you sick. Our spirit is the same way. It's not looking for, oh, let's see, here's my note from 20 years ago. Uh, oh, yeah, okay, God. That's not going to be food for us. Just as it wouldn't be in the spiritual, in the physical world, it's not in the spiritual world. God's mercies and information are new. He doesn't give us all the old information. He says, I've got something new for you. And not new information necessarily, but new application. You know, the Bible is written. It means what it says. And everybody is out there trying to give you something new let me give you some new revelation to the Bible. Let me get this new book that you've never, never read or this new information that you've never understood. Because if you take every seventh word of this, of this chapter, this is the message. And I've heard people say that. This is the message. I've taken every seventh word or 17th word or, you know, and this is the message that God has for you. And I'm going, okay, uh, that's wonderful. Did you take it from the original language or from the English language? 
how did you come up with all this special knowledge? I don't need any special knowledge from the hidden special knowledge from the Bible. God will show me what it means. And it's a living word. It will become new every morning. It, you know, and I've said this so many times. You know, I read through the Bible. Only been doing it for 47 years, and yet there's still new stuff in it. Every time I read it, some new verse jumps out at me and says, pay attention to me. You know, this, this is important to you now. Now, some of those verses jump out because of how much I've grown. They didn't mean anything in the past. Or it's for that particular day. One of the things I love is when I read my Bible in the morning, those verses, even though I'm following my schedule, those verses are what I need for that day. Somebody's going to ask me a question about the verses I read. Some situation's going to come up that those verses apply to. And God says, see, you prepared yourself. We're ready for today. And this is very important for us. And it says, we faint not, and we're renewed every day. Verse 17, for our light affliction which is but for a moment, works in us a far more and exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Now this is Paul. He says, my light afflictions. What were Paul's light afflictions? They're quite an amazing thing because for most of us, we would not think of Paul's light afflictions as light. We're going to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and we're going to, we're going to read what Paul calls light afflictions. They are ministers of Christ. I speak as a fool. I am more labor and abundant. Labor is more abundant. In stripes above measure, or, whip, or whippings. In prison more frequent. In death often. For the, of the Jews, five times received I 39 stripes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I suffered shipwreck. A night and a day have I been in the deep. In journeyings often in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils in my own countrymen, in perils of heathen, in perils in the city, perils in the wilderness, perils at sea, perils amongst false brethren, and trouble, that means troubles all, all over the place. And it says, in weariness and pain, pain, painfulness, in, in watching often, in hunger and in thirst, in fasting often, in cold and nakedness, besides these things that, that are without, there comes upon me daily the care of all the churches. Okay, these are Paul's light afflictions. Okay, taking the whip and being scourged. Uh, it was 23 through 28 in chapter 11. You know, scourging, we don't really understand the idea of scourging, but the scourging was to take the whip and they would lay open your back. Okay, you know, we talk about getting a whipping or something, you know, we don't. You know, if we got a whipping like he's talking about, the person who gave it would be in jail. All right. They were taking the whips and literally flaying the skin, pulling muscle and bone, muscle down to the bone. You got to imagine what Paul looked like. He said from the Jews, five times he took 39 stripes. You know, his own people. And before that, he goes, I got it from the Romans. <laughs> and he goes, I got beat with a rod. Okay, and a rod wasn't just a small, tiny thing. It was a huge thing that would have broken bones. Paul had to look like a mess. You know, always. You know, five times he took 39 stripes. <laughs> okay, that's 195 stripes with, with, if it was just a single whip. That's a lot of scars on his back and reaching around his sides. And they would have never really healed. You know, we think about that. What would Paul have looked like? The rod probably breaking bones and never being set. He would have had trouble moving. He would have had trouble. He had the one time when they stoned him. And we believe that he died with the stoning and was resurrected. Yeah. But you know, when we think of stoning, you know, you're going to think they put you in a pit and they picked up rocks and these were not little tiny rocks. These were big rocks. They would have to take two hands to lift these rocks up and they threw them down into the pit basically to bury you with, under the rocks. 
And there'd be 20 or 30 people throwing these rocks on top of you. You know, one rock is probably going to break bones and, and do much damage, and then they just, the weight of the rocks alone would kill you. Even if you didn't die from, the, from any one rock hitting your head or breaking too many bones, the sheer weight of the rocks would kill you. So he said all that, he goes, I was shipwrecked three times. I can't imagine what it would be like to be shipwrecked one time, much less three times. And then he says, beyond that, I'm always in danger of somebody attacking me. The very first one he ever had was in Damascus. They were, after he got saved, they were going to kill him, and they let him over the wall in a basket so they could get away. And everywhere he went, they were always, there were people that wanted to kill him. Most of us don't have that problem. And what did Paul say? These are the light afflictions. Why were they light? Because he compared them to eternity. All right? These were not really light afflictions in the human, in the human standard. But he said, what is, it, what is all this problem compared to eternity? Our problem as humans is we look at the now. God, I'm miserable right now. What are you going to do about it now? Why am I not happy, God? You're supposed to make me happy. And God never promised us happiness. He just promised that we would be fulfilled with our needs. But he did promise great joy in heaven and an eternity with him that's going to be perfect. And that's what Paul's saying. Light afflictions. I, I'm going through all these troubles, all these problems. And then you notice the last part of that verse in 28, in 28 in, in chapter 11 said, and above all these other problems, <laughs> I have all the cares of the church. Now, for most people, that doesn't mean a whole lot. But, you know, for anybody who's been a pastor, or even if you've been caring for your family, you begin to understand that. You know, how many times do us as parents suffer as we think about where our kids are headed? And we're going, man, if you guys just understood, and you, as we watch our kids go the wrong direction, we, make them, we watch them make bad decisions. We watch ourselves make bad decisions. And, we're, and Paul's saying, you know, I've been watching you guys, and I care so much about you, and I keep writing these letters, and I'm praying for you. And you keep making bad decisions, and I keep having to write letters, and I have to keep exhorting you to do good. And he's saying, you know, and when you read that section, it's like all these other things were nothing. All these beatings and everything I had were nothing compared to my concern about you. And this is so true for us. If you really care about people that you're ministering to, that you're trying to disciple, that you're trying to raise up, you end up caring more about them than probably anything else. You know, I care about this church so greatly you know, that I'm praying for everybody and I want to say I want to do everything I can to see them us, each one of us, grow. And beyond that, when I look at our stats on the website, you know, the 10,000 people almost listening to, uh, per month on the web, I have some responsibility to 10,000 people, you know, or hits, listening. That is also humbling when you look at it. Like 9,400 this last year, nine, you know, last month, you know, but... You know, there's a lot of people that listen to what is being said, you know, and, and some small responsibility to all of them as well. I begin to understand what Paul's saying, you know, you know all these people, and all these people out there, I have no idea who they are. <laughs> and yet, they listen. Everybody here watching growth. And I appreciate it so much when God shows me the growth in people. And I also get heartbroken when I see the non-growth, you know, or the step backward from somebody every once in a while. And going, God, just keep, keep them moving forward. Help them. Help them rebound. Don't let this step backwards be the one that takes them in the wrong direction. And it's so easy to step in the wrong direction. You know, one of the greatest prayers in my life is, God, I want to finish well. I don't want to see myself fall, fall aside because I've seen so many people that started well and stumbled before they got to the finish line. And I prayed, God, don't let that happen to me. I don't want to stumble before the finish line. Help me stay strong. Help my members of my church stay strong. Don't let them stumble and fall away. 
because the heartbeat of that is to care for people, to lift them up, to see growth. You know, when we're parents, our greatest goal is to see our children do well. Ultimately, we want to see them do better than we did in all areas and hopefully better spiritually. My goal for all my kids is take what I have taught you and expand upon it. And I've shared with you some of the hardest questions I get from, from anybody anywhere are from my own kids. Mostly because if they don't, if, you know, they're taking what I taught them and then they're expanding upon it and they'll ask me questions that are some, sometimes pretty hard questions. My oldest son can ask me questions that, you know, he's one of the few people that I, ask me questions that I gotta go, I gotta do some research on that question. You know, very rarely do I get questions like that from other people. But he's taken everything that I've, that I've taught him over the years and he's added stuff that he's learned over the years and done his own studies. And when he comes up with a question, it can be a deep question. And I love it because it shows me that he is growing in such a way that I'm looking forward to what is God going to use him for. My daughter often calls me up with questions and says, Dad, what about this? What about, what about this? And her questions aren't quite as deep, but they're challenging. And she's looking out there, and she's taking what I've learned, and I'm going, okay, these kids have started on a much higher level than I did. They're starting at a much, I can't wait to see what will happen to my grandchildren if my kids stay faithful. You know, you know where will my grandchildren be? Great-grandchildren if people follow in that same pattern. Because they're starting at a higher level each generation. They're not having to learn the basics at, at 30, 40 years old. They're learning the basics. And you know what I consider basics, you know, what was basic for me was not what my kids considered basics because I was teaching them deeper things and they're gonna teach the grandchildren deeper things. You know, it's amazing to me how many people out there in, God, in the kingdom don't understand the basics. One of the most interesting times I ever had is when I was 30 some years old and I was asked to teach the senior adult men's class. I was afraid to death to teach that class. Okay, I'm going, what can I teach these guys who've been Christians for longer than I've been alive? You know, and I prepared and I prepared and I prepared and I prepared. And I said a simple sentence, I go, this is just elementary stuff and we're gonna move on past it. And they go, would you explain what you just said? And it just, all of a sudden it hit me. These guys have been in church all their life, but they don't know God's word. And it was sad to look at people in their 60s and say, you haven't studied God's word, you don't know God's word. And you know, our goal is to raise people up, especially young people. One of the reasons I spend so much time with you guys as teenagers is to help you get a good start on God's word. Will you, will you fully understand what you're learning? Nope. My kids, my kids have called me so many times, you know, Dad, you know, we're just amazed at what you taught us because we sit in these classes and everybody's listening to us because we have all the answers and they're just speaking what they think is elementary truth because they've been raised on the study of God's word. And when you've been studying God's word for so long, things start to be elementary. And I have to be careful sometimes because I'll say something that to me is elementary and have somebody stop me and say, explain it, lift, lift it up. And our goal, my goal for this church is to get us past the elementary truths. In Hebrews chapter six, Paul gives a whole list of things. He goes, moving past these elementary truths. And I've read that list so many times and I'm going, wow, this is what Paul called elementary. <laughs> Most Christians don't understand half of what he says was the six or seven things he said were elementary. This is what all Christians should know. We're going to move past those things. And this is what is important for us. Are we into God's word enough that his truth is real? That we are moving into the more advanced materials? And my goal for our church is that we get past the elementary into the uh, high school stuff. Maybe if we're really lucky, we'll get into the college stuff. <laughs> you know, the, the hard meat. 
you know, Peter says that you're now at a time when you should be teachers and you're still on the milk. You're not even eating solid food yet. You're still drinking the milk. And as I say, in our day and age, most people don't even want the milk. They want watered down milk. Don't even give me milk. It hurts my tummy. Give me the watered. I want water with just a tiny bit of milk. That's our world today. You know, don't try to tell me these things about God. I just, you know, get it watered down as much as possible because my tummy can't handle even milk. And you're going, you've been a Christian for 38 years. You should be eating steak. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't know why I picked 38 years. But you, know, yeah. you, know, you, you should be eating steak now. You should be enjoying the feast of the word, not drinking watered down milk. You know, Peter said, you, you know, you're, you're still drinking the milk. And you know, like I say, in our day and age, it's like people don't even want the milk. They don't want the simplicity of the word. And you know, my goal for those that listen to me, the ones that, that are in our church, is that we are raising up people that want meat, hard meat, that can sit there and say, what does God mean from this? Not just the simplicity of it. And I've shared with you, it's kind of amazing. I saw a set of, set of books uh, for study, and they were, I think it was 13 or 14 volumes, and the topic was salvation. Okay, salvation. 13 volumes on salvation. Now, salvation is a really simple thing. We're sinners. Jesus died for us so, so that we could go to heaven. But you know, it's also one of the most complex things in the scripture because why did he have to die? What did, what did his death mean to us? How do, you know, there's so much more to salvation. It's a very simple thing to get saved. But if you really want to understand it, you could spend your entire life studying salvation and still never understand it. This is the great news about God's word. It's simple. There's the milk on it, the, the very simple, basic stuff. But you can take any one of those simple truths and study it for the rest of your life and still not know everything there is to know about it. Because our God is so infinite. And this is the wonderful thing about our God. He says, here's a simple truth. But here's the also the awesome complexity of that truth. We get to know God and how special he is and go, wow. There's just so much more. You know, a lot of people will go, well, why, God, why couldn't God just forgive us? You know, he's God. He can do what he wants. He is God, but he will never violate his character. His character is righteous, holy, and just. He cannot just look down at sinners and say, well, you know, I'm just going to forgive you because. Because he is a good judge, he must judge sin. And, you know, this is something, you know, when you're witnessing to people, you go, well, you know, I hope I'm good enough to go to heaven. You're not. (laughs) Well, what do you mean? Well, God's a good judge. If somebody stood in front of a judge and said, you know, judge, I've been a really good person. I only made this one one crime, and it's only been one time. And they say, okay, well, you can go. You you murdered this person, or you raped this person. Uh, Yeah, it was the only time you've ever done it, but you can go. That judge would be off the bench so fast... (laughs) because he would not be doing his job. His answer is, well, I know you may have only done it one time, but one time is all it takes to be punished. And that's God's attitude towards sin. Sin must be punished. And he poured all of his anger on Jesus for, that, for our sin. All of it. Jesus took the punishment, which is why for somebody to reject Jesus Christ is such an awful event in God's eyes. He says, he paid, Jesus paid all of your sin and you reject it? You reject his sacrifice? What he did for you? You want to stand before God in your own righteousness, your own filthy rags? When people stand at the white throne judgment, they're going to be standing in filthy rags. Their righteousness. Saying, God, let me into your perfect heaven. I've got these filthy rags on, but you know, It's the best I could do, so let me in. And God's saying, no, you have to be dressed as these Christians, dressed in Jesus Christ. I've said it many times, God has the ultimate dress standard to enter into heaven. 
has to be perfect robes. And the only perfect robes we have are the robes of Jesus Christ and his righteousness. Otherwise, we're dressed up in our own righteousness. And God says, nope, you're not coming into heaven in those rags. You've got to come in in this beautiful suit <laughs> that I gave you. You, know, you didn't earn this suit. Super abundant grace that we talked about gave you this suit of clothing that says, oh, come on in. You're perfect. Super abundant grace. And those who reject it have rejected the grace of God that says, enter into heaven. What a picture there is of that. We accept Jesus Christ and we get clothed in the righteousness of Christ. You know, and I love that picture. I love it. In, in uh, Zechariah, there's a scripture where it talks about the high priest appearing. Satan coming with the high priest to accuse him of his sin. And before they start, God says to the angels, strip him and put new clothing on him. <laughs> and then turns to Satan basically and says, okay, what's your problem? <laughs> That's the way God is with us. We come to him. Satan is standing next to us, seeing us in all these filthy, sinful righteousness. And before he gets to accuse us, God says, okay, clean this guy up, you know, put, put the righteousness of Christ on. And, and then goes to Satan, okay, what's your problem with my child? <laughs> what, what's your problem? It looks perfect to me. <laughs> and Satan is made speechless because of the righteousness of Christ. Now, he'll try to condemn us because we don't necessarily see ourselves as perfect in Christ. And sometimes he can stop us because we don't know who we are in Christ. We are perfect in Christ. We are part of God's family in Christ. We are declared by God to be just and holy. And Satan comes up and he can't get anywhere with God, but how often does he come and get somewhere with us? You're just a really rotten, awful sinner. If you, you know, how can God love you? You know, you know what you did yesterday. You know what you did last week. You know what you did 12 years ago that you still haven't forgiven yourself for. You know, you really, you really got to feel bad. You haven't felt bad enough yet to, to have God accept you. He's a liar. We need to see ourselves the way God sees us. Now, that doesn't mean that going, God, I'm without sin. I can just do whatever I want. No. I'm realistic to know that I'm awful, but the super abundant grace of God allows me to say I am forgiven. God has forgiven me because I am his child. He forgives me. I'm the prodigal son who's come back to him and he says, we're going to have a party. We're going to have a party because my son, my child is returned. He was lost and now he's found. He's come back. We're going to have a great big party. Put the best robe on and put the ring back on his finger and kill the fatted calf. My son is returned. We don't really understand what that's like. He, he didn't go to the son and say, because the son, remember the, the son came back and saying, his speech was, I have been so bad to you, father, make me your servant. It's really what he deserved. I mean, you know, okay, you go be the servant, and you, if you are a good enough servant long enough, I will make you my son again. But because the father was God, he said, nope, you can't do enough to earn my, earn being part of the family. You are part of the family. When we come to God, he says, you can't earn it. You are. You are part of the family. You have come to me. And very important that we look at that. It's so much exceedingly above anything that we can even imagine. And that's what Paul's saying. You know, these little light problems, <laughs> we get to spend eternity. Can you th a picture, when you've been in heaven for 10 to the 300th power <laughs> years, bigger number than I can even picture, you know, you look back on what happened on the earth. Probably won't even remember it. You know, you go, God, you know, I am so glad that that, that event that happened long, 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 long ago meant nothing. And this is where the great power comes from. And then this last verse on 18 of this chapter. While we look not on the things that are seen, but on the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things that are not seen are eternal. 
We as humans spend more time looking at what we can see than what we can't see. You know, the truth of God, we just talked about it. We are perfect in God's eyes. And yet, we look at all our imperfections. Right. You know, we've talked about this. God is outside of time. He is in every bit of time at the same moment. He's with Adam and Eve. He's actually before Adam and Eve, but he's with Adam and Eve as far as our time is concerned. But he's already at the destruction of this world, and he's already at the beginning of the new heaven and new earth. When God says we are perfect, he already sees when we're going to be glorified. He sees us as we will be because he's already there. We don't understand it, but it's beyond our comprehension, and yet we live on what we see, not what God sees. If we can learn just to have faith in what God sees, the eternal, who am I in him? I am perfect. You are perfect. If you're in him, you're perfect. Even though we're flawed, flawed worthless human beings most of the time, God says, it's not how I see you. I see you as what you will be. You know, not just as justification, but God says at the moment we're saved, you're perfect, but it's also as soon as he says that, sees that, he also sees us as we are going to be when we die. And he gives us our glorified body. And that's how God sees us now, because he knows what we will be. And it's hard for us to picture this because we don't exist in the time that God exists. You know, what does it mean to be followers of God? Everything. Mm -hmm. Everything. When we can really begin to see who we are in him, the power of who we are in him, the power of him in us, he dwells in us, changing us to be like him mm -hmm. so that he can be lifted up mm -hmm. and draw people to him. It is so precious to see God moving in that way, to see people drawn to God. And as I say so often, people are going to think we're weird. They're going to think we're strange because we follow God. And you know what? I'm happy that they do. If I cannot be part of this world and people get, you know, say that I'm weird, praise God, because that's going to draw them to God. Because what they're going to see is somebody who doesn't care that much about what goes on in this world. And that's what Paul said. He goes, you know, the light afflictions, you know, I've been beat, I've been, I've been tortured, I've been shipwrecked, I've been, but, but this isn't my home. I'm looking for home. I'm looking for the day when I will go be with God. How could Job go through everything that he went through? Lost everything except for his wife and his life. And yet, he pretty much stayed faithful. He got a after he'd been hammered by his quote-unquote friends for, for a period of time, he got a little shook up. But even in that, he was, he was still faithful. God, just give me a chance to talk with you. And then when God did decide to talk to him, he shut his mouth and said, I have nothing to say. <laughs> okay. okay, God, I see you. <laughs> I am nothing compared to you. If we can really start to understand that we are nothing compared to God, you know, it's a, a joke that goes around seminaries that we, you know, a seminary student learns one very important thing. There's one God. And the second thing they learn is, I'm not him. <laughs> okay? We as humans really need to understand we are not God. You know, God never hired us to be counselors. He's never said, well, you know what? I really need your advice on how to handle this situation. How many times do we try to give God advice? God, we really want to see you answer this prayer, and I think this is how you should answer it. And I've, I've, I've been tempted many times to think about that. You know, God, you know, it would really be nice if you just did this. And God kind of probably smiles. He goes, yeah, well, you know, yeah, you, you, you're crawling around on this ground. You, know, you don't know, really know what you're doing. You don't know the future. I know how to answer this the best way. And, you know, the more we start to realize, God, you're in charge, the better off we are. When we go through hard times and we go, God, I just don't understand it, but you are in charge. And he says, yes, I am. Just wait and see. Just wait and see what's going to come out of this. 
God has a good purpose. He has a good plan always. And the more we grab hold of that, the better off we're going to be. You know, and this is my strength so many times. And I'm not perfect at it, but usually I'm getting pretty good about this. God, don't understand what you're doing. Help me to just be comforted that you know what you're doing. God, don't understand this plan. This one doesn't look very good, but you've promised that it's going to be good. And you know what, God? You're still in control. God has never lost control of the universe yet. And you know what? He never will. This is his universe. He's in charge. And the only time he's going to let it go is when he's done with it. And then he's going to dissolve the whole universe and create a brand new perfect heaven and earth. And he's just going to say, okay, goodbye. Get you a new one. And we get to live in a new perfect universe that he's going to control that one. You know, we just have to fully understand God is in control. And if we forget that he's in control, remember that he's in control. <laughs> you know, when I think that God has lost control, I just need to remember that he has not lost control and never will. And the more I can grab hold of that truth, the better off I'm going to be. The more I understand that God is good all the time, the better off I'm going to be. And that all the time, God is good. When I fully understand that, life becomes easy. God, I don't understand it, but you know what? I'm not you, so I don't have to understand it. How many times have we done things that just don't make sense? <laughs> just obeying God, watching what he does, maybe even saying something. You know, I've had times when I've said something I know God wanted me to say, it, it made no sense at all. And you said it to somebody and going, wow, I needed to hear just those words. It's like, okay, I don't know why you needed to hear it. It didn't make any sense to me, but to that person, it's what they needed to hear. And it might have been just, God, I need somebody to say these words to me. They don't, they're not going to understand why. But if they say this to me, I'll understand that it was you. And oh, in I've never... <laughs> <laughs> like a to me. But you know, it's so important just to trust God and know that he has got a good plan for us. When he puts us through the light afflictions of this world, <laughs> and I don't think any of our problems are going to be like like uh, Paul's, most likely not going to be like Job's. But you know what? Our, our light afflictions may be just as hard to us as they was to them. Paul was a very special, special trained man who understood a lot of things about God. The things that I go through after 47 years would probably crush somebody who's a brand new Christian. I don't think too much of them because of where I'm at. And this is what I keep saying. Our test is equal to way, where we are at. If you're in elementary school and you're in kindergarten or first grade and they give you a math test, your math test is going to be 1 plus 1 equals 2. 2 plus 2 equals 4. Now, and to that kindergarten or first grade, that's a tough test. You give that test to a high school student, they're going to look at you like, test? I thought you were giving me a test. Yeah, that shouldn't be a test to a high school student. You give, you give that first grader algebra, you know, that's not going to work. <laughs> you know, that would be too heavy for them. And even for a high school student, you give them advanced trigonometry or valence calculus, they're going to look at you like, what, are you, are you nuts? I can't handle this stuff. God's tests are geared toward us for where we're at. If you're a brand new Christian, your tests are going to seem hard to you. But 20 years from now, if you keep growing, the test you have today, you know, you look back at it and say, well, it wasn't anything. It wasn't that big a deal. No. And the, the test I'm on now, oh my goodness, God, this is such a tough test. But you know, we're prepared for it. So it's not an impossible test. It is a test, though, to say that's a challenge. Where wherever we're at, it'll be a test that challenges us where we're at. For those of us who are mature Christians, we can't look down and, well, you can't pass that test. Well, we couldn't pass it either when we were in the same place you were at. Paul, having learned as much as he did, went through some hard tests. Job, as much as he had learned about God, went through a very hard test. And God says, your test Every test we go through is hard 
for where we're at at that moment. It may be, we may look back and say, wow, that was the simplest test, those tests 20 years ago, they were easy. <laughs> they weren't easy when we took them, <laughs> but when we look back on them and we've passed them, it's like, wow, what a simple test that was. And we kind of look back over our life and we can almost get to the point, and I've made this statement, you know, I've had an easy life. I haven't had any real tests or real problems, and I've had people who know me for a long time laugh at me. And they go, I remember what you went through. <laughs> I'm going, but when we look back on them and we've passed them, we realize how simple they were and how easy they were. And we look at our current test and we go, these are, these are tests. But when we grab hold of the verse we're memorizing, John, uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, there hath no temptation overtaken us, but such as is common to man, but God is faithful, who will not suffer us above which we are able to withstand, but will with the temptation provide a way of escape. Everything we go through is common. There's nothing, Satan's lie is that you're going through something nobody else has gone through. And we've got to be careful not to buy into that lie. There's nothing new under the sun. Everything that's going on has happened to other people and is happening to other people. And Satan likes to make us feel like, well, you're, you know, look how awful you are. You know, look at the thoughts you had while, you, while the pastor was teaching or while the, while the singing was going on or when you were reading your Bible. What kind, of, what kind of Christian are you to have these kind of thoughts and temptations? Now, you're the only one that when you're reading your Bible has bad thoughts. You know, I can guarantee you, every one of us have gone through the temptation in the middle of trying to read the Bible, in the middle of prayer, in the middle of a service, listening to a pastor. You know, it is not uncommon. All kinds of bad things. And they're not us in many cases. And we've got to understand that when Satan makes the accusation that, you know, you're an awful terrible person because you're doing it, it's not abnormal. Matter of fact, they probably don't even come from us in most cases. But even if they did, they're still not abnormal and, and unusual. We need to say, God, help me. The ultimate way of escape through anything that comes our way is Jesus Christ. In Jesus, we can go through anything. Now, it will take us time to learn that. But ultimately, every temptation that comes our way is designed to break us if we're going to try to follow it in our own strength. We can only get through the temptation through Jesus Christ. Because God is trying to break us. He wants our flesh broken. He wants us totally dependent on him. So every temptation is designed to break our flesh and have God say, I am going to lift you up. I am going to keep you. So, and we're going to close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. Lord, help us to learn to walk with you. Help us to stand in you and just look at these afflictions that come our way as light because we see them through the glory that you've given us. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. amen.